Hi, I'm Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday but by no means ordinary thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. Hello friends and welcome back to the Being Luminary podcast. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, I want to give you a warning that this episode has references to pain and torture, both emotional and physical. So as a consequence, because there are some pretty graphic descriptions, I wouldn't necessarily want you to be listening to it around the kiddos unless you are wearing headphones. And also, just to alert anyone who was looking for a nice, easy listen today, this might be one that you want to um, prepare yourself for. Somebody asked me recently what I thought might be different about my life had I been born in a different skin, in a less brown skin. And my immediate response was, how could I possibly know? We none of us really know, do we, what the other person's experience is, but the thought of not experiencing this life as someone with brown skin has never really occurred to me, has never really been something that I have tried to inhabit. It would never be something that I could ever walk through. You know, what would a day be like? What would a week be like? I have no idea. What I did think, though, was that there have been some peak experiences. And by peak, I mean bad peak, not good peak. There have been some peak experiences that have really, as the kids say, ground my gears. And one of those is the felt sense that somehow I could cope with things more easily than my peers. And perhaps that I could withstand more emotional pain than my peers. Or at least that there was somehow societally an expectation that I could. This idea runs so deep that I am sure that it is actually much more socialized into my consciousness by depictions of black women and girls in the media as it is realized through actual experiences, either through school or at college or indeed in the workplace. So I started delving into the somewhat horrific archives of this pernicious idea that black people can tolerate more pain than white folks and blow me down if it isn't just the most awful body of work. You know me though, being luminary is all about being luminary. So I thought we'd go there. I thought we'd go there today and I thought we'd shine some light on this idea as well as try to root out if there is any evidence of it in the places that we work and lead. So as I'm talking, I guess what I'm hoping is that for you as listeners, you can begin to attach yourself to that tricky notion. Are we having expectations here of one group of people that we wouldn't have of another? So we're going to go back to Baldwin County, Georgia. We're going to go back to 1820, where John Brown, an enslaved man on a plantation, was lent, yes, I said lent, to a physician, a Dr. Thomas Hamilton, who was obsessed with proving that physiological differences between black and white people existed. 
So Dr. Hamilton used John Brown to try and determine how deep black skin was because he was obsessed. He was convinced that black people had thicker skin than white skin because, according to Dr. Thomas Hamilton, black people had less sensitive nerves. He also believed that black people had larger sex organs and smaller skulls, which he translated to mean higher levels of promiscuity and lower levels of intellect. Oh, how I wish I could say that these were also no longer enduring narratives. But friends, let's save that for another episode. Anyway, back to John Brown. So John Brown escaped his enslavement in the 1830s. And he migrated to England, where in 1855, he published an autobiography titled Slave Life in Georgia, a narrative of the life, sufferings and escape of John Brown, a fugitive slave now in England. And you can look up the horrific detail of the torture that Brown endured. But all of Hamilton's, what should we call them, experiments... They were all conducted on unanesthetized skin. They were conducted with saws, they were conducted with knives, and they were conducted with scalpels. And what's made worse for Brown, if you can imagine something worse, is that Hamilton was also in the grip of dementia while he was conducting his, his experiments, his research which meant that in the face of Brown's screams of excruciating pain, Brown was met with the retort, you are more resilient to pain than we are. And this torture went on for nine months. It went on for nine months to the point where the experiment wasn't able to prove the myth. Yes, friends, it took Hamilton nine months. And even then, and throughout this period and beyond, his exaggerated myth that black people felt less or even no pain continued to circulate. Now, this abuse, this torture of black bodies continued through into surgical experimentation. Another doctor, uh, Dr. James Sims, he's known as the father of modern gynaecology, by the way. And I just, it just is beyond me why we have to have a father of women's bodies. But again, I think that's probably a story for another podcast. Anyway, um, Dr. James Sims, he conducted his research, and I, I'm using the word research in, you know, heavy inverted commas. He conducted his research on enslaved black women, again, without anesthesia. And Dr. James Sims's research, his body of work, is all about female bodies, is all about female reproduction, female birth processes. So one can only imagine the torture and pain and abuse he conducted on the sexual organs of black women all in a bid for what is now understood as the greater good, all in that progression 
towards becoming known as the father of modern gynaecology. Indeed, such is the celebration of these figures and the ignorance to the brutality offered up along the way, to the injury caused to people along the way, that it's only in the last few years, and I'm talking like the last three or four years, that a statue commemorating James Sims was taken down from its position in Central Park. But Angie, you're all saying, surely all of this is in the past, right? Why are we talking about this now? Why are we still going on about this now? Well, because sadly, friends, these ideas about the differences in the pain thresholds of black and white people, they still exist. Survey after survey demonstrates that black and Hispanic people, whether those people are children presenting to doctors or to hospitals with pain, or whether these are very elderly people presenting to doctors or hospitals in extreme pain, black and Hispanic people are more likely to receive inadequate pain management when compared to their white counterparts. So I started reading into this a bit more and I found an article by a journalist called Linda Villarosa. She writes in the New York Times and I'll put a link to the article in the show notes for this. It's a really interesting article. And she cites a 2016 survey of medical students on this very topic. And she writes that uh, this 2016 survey of 222 white medical students and residents published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, showed that half of them endorsed at least one myth about physiological differences between black people and white people, including that black people's nerve endings are less sensitive than white people's. When asked to imagine how much pain white or black patients experienced in hypothetical situations, the medical students and residents insisted that black people felt less pain. This is 2016, friends. Back to Linda Villarosa. So this made the providers less likely to recommend appropriate treatment. A third of these doctors also still believed, or sorry, a third of these doctors to be also still believed the lie that Thomas Hamilton tortured John Brown to prove nearly two centuries ago that black skin is thicker than white skin. So a third of those doctors-to-be believe that black skin is thicker than white skin in 2016. I mean, Houston, we have a problem. I just can't wrap my head around this, this incredible myth. And it just keeps coming back to me. How else is this being perpetuated? How else am I internalizing this? How else are people who are racialized as black and brown realizing this as a, an experience, understanding this as a true experience? These doctors in the health system 
with those unchallenged, unconscious biases, go on to drive a wedge between black and brown people and the likelihood of good health outcomes. So from black women's experiences of childbirth, which we've been hearing a lot about recently, you know, black women going into the healthcare system and experiencing being left in extreme pain during childbirth because it is somehow subconsciously or unconsciously believed that black women, that black people experience pain differently. So from those women's experience of childbirth all the way through to black and brown children's experiences of having things like their appendix removed with lower levels of pain management. These experiences mean that these communities are being extremely poorly served. They are being traumatised and they are being left worse than when they were found by the medical system. And there's a, a couple of slides that I often show in the training that I run on the protected characteristics. And and when thinking about race and the relationship between race and institutions, I cite some of these medical statistics because we're trying to, in the work that we're all doing, wrap our heads around why it is that certain groups need to be protected. Why are those identities, characteristics protected? They're protected for a reason. They're protected because it means that if you hold one of those identities, you are less likely to thrive in modern day society. So the interface between the protected characteristics and institutions becomes a place, a moment in the chart. It becomes an almost liminal space that we need to look into. It's in that interface that something goes wrong. And the interface between race and health leads to poor outcomes, leads to horrendous figures around the differences between black men being sectioned under the Mental Health Act and white men of the same age being sectioned under the Mental Health Act. It leads to huge divergence between groups around infant mortality. It leads to divergence between outcomes for West Indian, Caribbean, Pakistani, Bangladeshi men if they are smokers and their white counterparts. So something is going wrong in the interface between that protected characteristic of race and the institution of health. I questioned when I looked back into this data, when I looked back into this archive of pain and trauma and abuse, I questioned why it is that those communities are still being blamed, if you like, for not wanting to take up the medical support that is offered. Those headlines around minoritized communities not wanting to engage with the health provision around the time of the early stages of the pandemic. Those pernicious adverts aimed at minoritized communities 
encouraging them to be first in line for their vaccinations, citing them, those groups, as problematic because they were not heading in their droves in the same numbers as their white counterparts to receive medical assistance. Those kinds of narratives suggest the problem lies with the minoritised community. And of course, what this archive shows us is that problem lies in an institution that has proven itself time and time again to be entirely untrustworthy for those groups. An institution that should engender a good degree of question. If my experience of going to hospital to give birth is going to be so significantly different to my white counterparts, then what trust should I have in that particular institution? Anyway, I digress. This relates in a different way to where I set out to go. And this is what I want to really focus on. This is what I want us to inquire into in our institutions. Could I started to wonder, the manifestations of this belief that non-white people have a higher pain threshold than white people, could that be traced into our attitudes and assumptions of how people deal with emotional pain and trauma? So not just physical pain, but our emotional responses. Could it be the case that non-white people are expected to be able to withstand or somehow have a greater capacity to dealing with emotional pain than their white counterparts. I tried to track these questions into my own experience. And somewhere in there, I find I do have an internalised belief that somehow I'm expected to be able to hold pain at a greater level than my peers. And I think it's something that goes hand in hand with having to deal with everything from the daily microaggressions through to the outright racist nonsense. So in a small way, it's an inner voice that says each and every time someone, I don't know, congratulates me on being so articulate. Well, that's a microaggression, friends, if you if you didn't pick that up. I think it's something that makes me say, huh, interesting. I guess you expect that I'm just going to have to tolerate this over and over again for the for the rest of my life. I guess you, that person offering up that microaggression, I guess you think that's okay. And I don't necessarily feel these things profoundly and deeply, but that says more about my character my way of processing information, but it does make me wonder about children. I always think our children are the people we're here being luminary for, doing this work for. And it puts me in mind of this term that I think I found in Leila Saeed's work of the adultization of black children. This makes me wonder about the adultization of black children, the way in which black children in their communities, often in their schools, are expected to not just cope with the interpersonal oppression that they might face, those direct microaggressions or, or, or racist comments, but also they're expected to cope with the structural oppression that they face. 
the way that their schools or colleges or universities are organised or disorganised around them. So our black children get that double dose of interpersonal and structural. And somehow I feel that they are expected to deal with it. They are deemed by all of us, because we're all socialised in this way, they are deemed resilient enough to cope with that. Now, why would that child be more capable of coping with both the interpersonal and the structural oppression that they face? Why on earth would they? Unless we had some idea that black children were able to tolerate pain in different ways. This is my provocation. This body of work and my interpretation of this archive of trauma and pain, it makes me wonder about the treatment of mothers when they lose a child to violence. It makes me wonder about the different ways those mothers are treated by the police force and by the judiciary if that child happens to be racialized as black or brown. Does anything in the way that we have all been socialised, we are all in this soup together, does anything in the way we have all been socialised expect Mina Smallman to cope with the loss of her two daughters, with the murder of her two daughters, with greater ease? Does anything in the way we've been socialised expect Mina Smallman to cope with the police treatment of her and her two daughters? with greater ease. Is it that? Or do we alleviate ourselves of the discomfort of her pain with greater ease? It's as if structural racism has dementia. And no matter how many times we flinch or internally wail, it still retorts. But you don't feel pain. So that's where I'm going to leave you today, friends a few provocations and I'm going to invite you if you're interested in exploring these topics in more detail if you're interested in having these kinds of conversations about identity about the protected characteristics if you're interested in provocation and exploration and seeing things differently and challenging yourself and shining a light I'm going to invite you to come and join my program Luminary Leadership of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Programme. Because in there we're doing this kind of work with no blame, no shame, no guilt. But with a lot of humility, we're taking responsibility. We're shining a light. We're being interested in ourselves and we're being interested in our organisations. And we're showing up in ways that will change things for other people. So if you're interested in that programme or this work speaks to you, then head over to my website. The links are in the show notes, www.angelabrown.co.uk and you can find out all the different ways of working with me. But for today, thank you so much for listening and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. 
And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.